Welcome to episode 276 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films to TV and everything in between. How you get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up in our very, very humble opinion. I am Giles Alderson. I'm a writer, director and a producer. And I've just got word that my directed feature film, The Stranger in Our Bed, based on the best-selling novel of the same name, is to be released soon. <laughs> I can't make the full announcement, but it's not going to be too far away, which is super exciting. I will fill you in on that as soon as I can and on Wolves of War, which I'm sure I'll find out more about at Cannes. Today on the show, we have the fantastic director and editor, Roger Nygaard. And now Roger is probably best known for his very successful and very acclaimed documentary, Trekkies, which is about the most obsessive fans you could ever meet, uh, the Star Trek fans. He has also made the documentary The Nature of Existence and the documentary Six Days in Roswell and The Truth About Marriage. He also made the cult car salesman film Suckers and he's directed television series such as The Office and The Bernie Mac Show. His work as a film editor includes Grey's Anatomy and Emmy-nominated episodes of the and many episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Roger was an absolute delight and gave us so much information and knowledge about his career, about what it's like to work in the film industry as a director and an editor. We also dive deep into his book as well a little bit, Cut to the Monkey, which is a Hollywood editor's behind-the-scenes secrets of making hit comedies. Myself and Roger talked about why you should watch films, why you should study more literature, how that's vitally important, what successful filmmaking is about and why the need for conflict in films. And we talked about scene shifting in your writing and the director-editor style and why it's important to practice. We also talked about why you need to ask for money and how he raised finance for his films. We discussed why people invest and how you can close the deal. All that is to come on this week's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. We have a couple of shout outs this week. We normally do quite a few of these, but I thought I'd target these a little bit more that might help you filmmakers listening. I got an email from Lena Samoili because she's part of Action Extreme. It's the first major action studio in the UK who focus on grassroots talent growth and development and training. And they have launched their new web series challenge. It's an exciting talent development initiative where you can apply and the entrants are encouraged to submit a teaser trailer for an original action-based web series for the chance to win 5,000 cash prize towards production cost of making a pilot episode, which is based on your trailer. So if you want to do this, if you're into action, if you think, yeah, I could shoot something like that, which you can, you've got an iPhone. Hey, you never know, you might know a DP friend who might be free that weekend and wants to shoot it with you. They're looking for amazing original action-based series. This is a great opportunity for you. You also get bespoke industry support, uh, mentorship, and the opportunity for your trailer to be screened at a special event uh, in July 2022. Two up will also uh, receive 250 pounds each competition is open to anyone aged 18 and above so apologies if you're younger than that anywhere in the world all entries must be a minimum of 60 seconds and a maximum of two minutes if you're interested go to actionextreme.co.uk forward slash challenge we will put a link to that in the show notes 
But if you fancy it, why not? This is an excuse to go shoot something anyway. So get involved. Also, um, the wonderful Jack Parr emailed me. He is one of the stars of my film, Wolves of War. And he has set up his crowdfunder for his directing debut short film, The Drop. Jack has been in many uh, films and TV, including Massive of the Air, Peaky Blinders, which you'll have seen very recently, and One Shot, the fantastic one-shot action uh, movie that's on Sky Movies now. The Drop is a crime thriller where three cars all drive to the same location, their fate meets them there and he's looking for money for production rental hire car hire cast and crew wages etc so if you can support in any way do go to indiegogo.com forward slash the drop link to that is also in the show notes and finally riptide tim barrow got in touch this film riptide is in cinemas this week i'm gonna go down with dom lemoir on wednesday evening at the castle cinema i believe it's 7 p.m come down Come and support this, what looks like a fantastic indie film. I'm sure Tim and some of the team will be on the podcast very soon. I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. So if you're in London uh, this Wednesday, the 11th of May, come down, come say hello and come support indie films. Like I say, always, you should watch as many films and especially indie films as you can because you learn from them. You see what they're doing and you can grow from it and you can think to yourself, hey, I could do better than that. Or you could go, wow, I aspire to be that. Either way, it's worth doing so hopefully i'll see you down there and don't forget can film festival and market is coming up very very soon in fact it's a week away week and a bit away we will be there a lot of the hosts of the filmmakers podcast so do come and say hello if you see us let us know what you're up to let us know what you're doing also look out for a blog coming up on how to survive and thrive in can yes that's right we do have a blog if you haven't checked that out do have a look we go deep into filmmaking techniques and practices and we have two rather fabulous on set jargons for you made by the rather brilliant hugh siddle so check that out and uh, we will see you in can remember to join us on the patreon uh, if you want to support this podcast anymore and if you like this podcast in any way do tell your friends that is how we grow and if you really like this podcast go onto itunes and give us a five star review or Apple Podcasts as it's called now. We really appreciate that. Right, let's get to it. This is my chat with the fantastic director and editor, Roger Nygaard. Enjoy. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, good. Nice to meet you. Is it morning there at the moment for you? Yeah, 8.30 a.m. Holy moly. That's nice and early to be uh, doing a full-on chat about filmmaking though to be honest we're kind of used to it right well that's one of the great things about being an editor the hours aren't so crazy early so i can go into the editing room and get started you know 9 30 or 10 o'clock you know when i'm shooting or directing i gotta get up at the crack of insane and be on mm -hmm. the set you know at 6 a.m so <laughs> i love the hours of an editor yes it's funny because editors and sort of the sound department or the post department can go well yeah this is my time i'm kind of working from here to here especially in tv they sort of go well that's it you're gonna have to wait till tomorrow often in indie film it's like okay all right, I'll stay later and do the work for you. Thank you so much to those people who do. But yeah, it's true. It's a little bit more structured in your timescale. Well, filmmaking, directing, producing, writing, it's its not. There's no, there's no line. Do you prefer editing then because of that? Is that something you like more of? I would say that editing has captured my heart. Okay. But I do like alternating because part of what, you know, when I, I wrote this book, Cut to the Monkey, the theme of the book is I think it's better to be a filmmaker who edits 
than an editor who cuts films. Mm. I think you're going to be much better at your craft when you learn the disciplines that surround that craft. And so by being a filmmaker and making films, I've done sound, I've done camera, I've, I've been on camera. I now bring all of that knowledge into the editing room and then I can provide solutions that someone who maybe came up through the ranks or whatever mm. was an assistant and only learned the software and began editing has never done all those other things doesn't necessarily have the background to bring that to bear in making uh, and providing solutions for editing. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the, as filmmakers, we should learn as many disciplines as we can. So if you want to be an editor, learn how to make films. If you want to be a, a sound mixer, learn how to make films. You know, every department, hold the boom, go do the makeup, do the teas and coffees, understand delivery and DIT. The more you know about filmmaking, I feel the better filmmaker, whatever department you will be in, you'll be better at. And, and I know you say it in the book a lot, and it's it's a brilliant book, Cut to the Monkey. And it's really interesting that you say that. And it's one of your early chapters as well. You know, it's like, learn how to be a filmmaker. Learn how to do it. It's your third book as well. So um, have you got better at, you know, sort of, put, and also could you find more stuff to put in there? <laughs> there is always that as well, isn't there? Oh, the next book is in progress. Yeah, I'm working on a book next about how to make documentaries based on my experiences making Trekkies mm -hmm. and Six Days in Roswell and the nature yeah. of existence and the truth about marriage. And I became addicted to making documentaries. You make one, it's like, a, you know, I'll just try heroin once. You know, no, <laughs> wow. you, you're going to be an addict for life if you make a documentary Got, because yeah. it's such an exciting journey. Mm. I, I didn't know. I know when I started making films, I had no desire or interest or thought of making documentaries. It wasn't on my radar at all. Mm. And just kind of by a fluke, I had cast a, an actress named Denise Crosby in my first film, a really low-budget film called High Strung, mm -hmm. yep. and we stayed friends. She she had been on Star Trek The Next Generation playing a character called Tasha Yar, and she said to me one day, you know, I've been doing these Star Trek conventions, and I said, wow, what's that like? And she just was describing the people there, and it was just sounded wow, weird and fascinating, and she said, you know, we should make a documentary about this world, and I said, I can't believe no one's done it. That's It's so obvious, of course, and no one had. So we found a producer who put up enough money to shoot one weekend and we shot a test. And the way that we, Denise Crosby and I learned how to make a documentary was we had our own little seminar. I went to this local video store called Vidiots, which was the place that had all the weird stuff. And we rented some documentaries like Crumb and My Brother's Keeper and mm -hmm. Hoop Dreams. And we mm -hmm. watched these films together and started absorbing the language of film. And that's another one of the lessons in my book is that you really need to absorb the language of film by watching the classics, watch them all and take notes and be aware of what they're doing successfully, because then you can bring all of that like scoring. How does scoring work? Why does it work? Why does some work, some music work better than others? And I didn't know any of this until I started researching it, but there's like something called a major key and a minor key. Mm -hmm. And when something is composed in a minor key, for example, it sounds sad. And so many times when I'm working with composers, I say, is that in a minor key? And they go, yeah, okay, that's, this has got to be an upbeat, positive moment. So let's just change this. And so I can now speak their language mm -hmm. by, by having absorbed the language of film, which includes writing, music, editing, and uh, cinematography and lighting. You can then communicate with everybody and be a better whatever you choose to be, whether it's an editor or a cinematographer or wardrobe. Or, you, know, you can be better at that by knowing what everyone else is doing or at least having a basic understanding of their language. 100% mm -hmm. agree. I think 
it really is vital. It does make a difference if that costume person has made a short film before, because then they get what you're after. They also understand the time constraints. They understand what the director or producer have been through and why they're asking for certain things. And if you made a film yourself, right? If you've made a film, you have experienced what is a color palette. Yes, exactly. Oh, they have a color. They mm -hmm. they design the colors and they choose within whether it's wardrobe or the art department. And I didn't know that until I started making films. Yeah. And how did you start before that? What was it that wanted? to get you into film in the first place because you know you were already kind of making films or well, you were you were editing stuff by the time you said oh let's make a documentary and i'm the same as you by the way i never thought i'd make documentaries i'm on my second one now and i'm sure we'll make more but <laughs> see you're addicted right uh, yeah, i told you, you you can't help it it just takes so long <laughs> the editing process and obviously that helps you and i i've said this a lot on the podcast but one of the things that's helped me massively is learning to edit and understanding that process it made me a much better director a much better writer but you were already like i say editing by the time you'd moved on Onto your documentary journey but how did you get into editing in the first place obviously it's in the book by the way but um so obviously there's a lot of stuff in the book that is so valuable but we're going to give you a little taste today so yeah, i'll give you the abridged version <laughs> of that story i mean part of it started with family time my dad loved to watch movies sci-fi and horror films and my mother loved hitchcock films mm. and we would we had gather around the television and watch movies and i would watch with them and i just became enthralled with with storytelling with these movies and and you know when you love something you kind of want to be a part of it that's what fandom is about like mm. the star trek fans the reason they're such enthusiastic fans is they want to be a part of this world in some way and by dressing up going to conventions it's kind of a small way for them to do that and for me as a kid i was just oh i love this and i saw this cartoon you know there'd be these cartoons on on saturday morning and one of them was stop motion animation it was called a gumby cartoon mm -hmm. And Gumby was this weird world where this weird-headed guy, this green guy, would get in these adventures. And I thought, I want to try that. And around the same time, I discovered my dad's camera. He had an 8-millimeter Bell & Howell movie camera nice. for shooting family films. He left it sitting out. And so I got my hands on it. And when you leave stuff out, I would take it apart by noon. And <laughs> so I went and filmed my own first movie emulating Gumby films by stop-motion animation with my own Charlie Brown and Linus dolls, and I put them through little adventures, tightrope yeah. walking on the back of the couch, and <laughs> I never stopped. I haven't, I haven't stopped since then. What I've done is I've just gotten more sophisticated in terms of storytelling. And if I had one regret, my biggest regret, probably like in college, is I didn't study more literature. I wish I had read more of the classics and thereby absorbed more of the storytelling because filmmaking, successful filmmaking is number one about telling good stories. Nobody really cares. The audience doesn't care how well photographed it is or what the costumes are. They care whether they felt something yes. by watching the story you're telling. Mm -hmm. Did you make them cry or laugh or did you make them angry or ideally all three mm -hmm. in some way? Yep. And what does that is the way a story is structured. Every single one of your favorite and my favorite movies is a fight from some, two people are fighting over something or anti protagonist and antagonist. Mm -hmm. And as an editor, you have to understand story structure because your job is to oftentimes is to fix this movie or this TV show. What's wrong with it? You, then you analyze, well, okay, let's look. You know what? You're introducing your antagonist way too late. And an audience is, they're losing interest because there's no conflict. Mm -hmm. You must have conflict from the beginning. Every scene needs some kind of conflict. 
when I was t- working with Julia Louis-Dreyfus mm. on Veep, I asked her about that. You know, do you feel like there should be conflict? And she said, absolutely. I need something to push against in every scene that I enter in order to be successful in that scene. And so actors recognize that and a good editor understands that and writers understand that it's all about conflict. So when you're analyzing your script or you're analyzing the thing you're editing, and when I am, I'm looking at, okay, where does the conflict begin in this movie or in this scene? And if it's delayed too long, you want you need to enter the scene much later. You got to, ideally you want to start with the conflict if you can, or, and then you want to get out of the scene and get, once the conflict has resolved or positions have, have changed, or as Robert McKee says in his book Story, the polarity has shifted. Mm. Every scene goes through a polarity shift. If it starts off on a negative, it ends on a positive. And the next scene begins on a positive and ends on a negative. And the, the acts do that as well. They shift polarity. And there's a mathematical underpinning to all of filmmaking and all of writing and all of editing. And I, I wasn't aware of these things until I began studying. And so I collected all of what I've learned now because of all this and try to coalesce it into this essentially a cookbook for editors. Yeah, amazing. I love it. I didn't set out to become an editor. I mean, primarily what I do now is edit. That's where most of my job offers Mm -hmm. are. And, you know, we all kind of end up specializing. You sort of need to specialize in today's world in order to compete. Mm -hmm. I was making my very first feature film called High Strong that Denise Crosby was in, and I hired an editor. And I sat behind him and watched him, and we edited on something called an EMC Squared, which was one of the earliest... Uh, digital editing systems. Right. After that, I learned a division and then, you know, Avid and Final Cut. But I watched him. I sat behind him. And by for six weeks, we edited this film. By mm-hmm. week five, I knew how to do it by watching him mm. because I was interested and I, I guess I had a knack for it. And I sort of pushed him out of the way by week six and was doing it myself when he was <laughs> collapsed on the couch or went home. Of course, or tired. Yeah, exactly. You went, well, okay, let me do it. Yeah, how amazing. Right. Learn by doing. And I, you know, there's a, an old Woody Allen joke that says where he said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. You know, you have no idea how things are going to go. I had no I could not have predicted my trajectory Mm -hmm. as a filmmaker, aside from just I love films and I want to be around it and be involved in somehow. Mm -hmm. But the specifics have been completely coincidental or uh, surprising. But that said, I always say yes to opportunities. Mm-hmm. Whenever they arise, whether documentary, sure, I don't know anything about it, but I'll try it. Editing, sure, I'll take that on. Directing, sure. Writing, you know, and and the most important of those, I think, is writing. If you're going to study one thing more than anything else, you really need to be a writer, no matter what discipline you're in as a filmmaker. Just because storytelling and story structure is so key to everything. Yeah, and it's fascinating how we can we can learn so much from watching others and watching how they grow and watching straight away go, oh, I could do that. I feel, you know, encouraged by that. I remember when I was putting plays on at the Royal Court uh, in London, in the Soho Theatre, and the other directors would come in and do the work and I'd sit there frustrated at the back as the writer and sort of go, oh, it's not how I want to direct it. It's not how I'd want to do it. And after about four times of asking another director to do it, I was like, do you know what? I'm going to do this one myself. And just fell in love with that side of it as well. And it's like, okay, this... And being scared, you know, if other people were directors, you know, that's what they did. And you were just a writer-actor type thing at the time. And, you know, suddenly actually it's like, no, 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 it's all right. You've got a voice. You can say that voice, even if you might not think you are a director yet or think you have the ability. If you've got a vision and a story... You can tell it. As long as you can get that vision across to other people, 
like your DOP, like your production designer, your actors, and then your editor. You, you're a director. You can tell us stories. What we all do as a child, we tell stories constantly. Um, we're almost directing from a really young age. <laughs> Obviously, going from uh, High Strung and then into Trekkies, you know, how did that feel, that whole journey there? Because you're, you're directing, you're trying to get your work out as a director. And then obviously with Trekkies, you're directing, but also you edited that. And that whole side of you that turned to editing, obviously during that time, you, you directed some great shows, you know, The Office being one of them. How, how was that journey for you? Talk us through that process. Yeah, you'll see in Trekkies, there's a definite editing style. And that didn't come out of nowhere. What happened was I had a great misfortune that I became very fortunate. And the great misfortune is what happens to a lot of filmmakers and maybe most. You make your first film, you make your first feature, you get it done. You think, I got it. I did it. Now I'm in. Mm -hmm. But getting that second feature mm -hmm. is even harder most of the time. And there was a three-year gap between finishing my first film, maybe it was closer to four, uh, and making starting my second film. Mm -hmm. I went into debt. $30,000 into credit card debt, wow. thinking I'm going to get that next project. And they always fall apart. It doesn't happen. And I, I was so far in debt that I just, I, okay, this isn't sustainable. I need to make money doing something. And somebody I had met when we were both production assistants, he had been moving up on, on the ladder over at uh, TNT, which is a network that was uh, a Turner Network Television. And he gave me a call when I was in the middle of my like my lowest period and he said, hey, would you be interested in taking a shot at producing some promos for the network? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I said, okay, sure. What is it? What do I have to do? <laughs> I don't know anything about promos. Uh -huh. Well, they're commercials and we do things like a Betty Davis marathon. So you've got, you'll take three Betty Davis films and you'll write three promos. One is three minutes one is 30 seconds and one is 15 seconds that advertises coming up tonight of uh, Betty Davis's life. And you watch these three movies and she was born here and she did this and she rose to prominence. She won this award. They're little capsulized biographies. So I took that on to prove myself and wrote and delivered some promos and he liked them. And I ended up doing that for two years mm -hmm. and I got myself out of debt okay. making these promos, but kind of aside from doing what I wanted to do, I wanted to be making movies, of course, but mm -hmm. because I was sort of forced to make these promos for two years, I learned the discipline of editing in a way I never could have, because if you're cutting a 15 second commercial, there, you don't have a single frame to waste. Everything has to be perfectly edited and utilized. So I learned, that's where I learned most of my tricks was editing these and producing and writing these promos mm. it's like shooting if you're a basketball player it'd be like shooting layups all day for mm -hmm. two years yeah so i did that for two years yeah you're gonna get better and i got better and better and improved my craft got my ten thousand hours in mm -hmm. you know as malcolm gladwell talks yes. about and i finally you know was able to get my second film off the ground after uh, meanwhile i'm simultaneously writing and pitching and i made an action film called mm -hmm. back to back american yakuza 2 mm -hmm. for this uh production company that does these sequels and I was able to practice my craft again. And while I was making that film, we pitched Trekkies and, and it's sort of continued ever since. But it was that core period of time where I got to practice editing day by day and trimming and reducing things to only what's necessary and removing everything that, oh, that's nice. But you know what? It, it's not needed. We don't need it to tell the story. 
that's how I became, I guess, the person I am as an editor today and a filmmaker. Trekkies, let's talk about Trekkies, because like you say, it's obviously something you were passionate about enough to go, let me do this. The reason why I want to ask this question a little bit, because the documentary I made first, I kind of stumbled into it a little bit as well. It's called World of Darkness, and it is very similar to Trekkies in terms of, it, it's very different, but it's similar in terms of we follow the people who like to dress up in uh, World of Darkness costumes, vampire or mages and stuff. And uh, Trekkies was an inspiration for when I was making World of Darkness about how do we approach these people? And it wasn't my world. And maybe it wasn't your world either. No, it was not. So you were an outsider like me. So we could have it our own voice into it rather than being part of that world and being too engrossed in it. We could look from the outside, which I think is why Trekkies does so well, because it's hilarious and funny, but also deeply moving at the same time. How long did you shoot for? Was it over a certain period of time? Because obviously conventions coming up and, and obviously getting people's approval, but also then doing the edit of it, which I know for the one I'm doing now is taking a long time. So yeah, Talk me through that process. Yeah, Trekkies was the quickest of my documentaries. It was a nine-month process, okay. which is lightning speed now mm. because my next film took two years. Six Days in Roswell took two years. The Nature of Existence took four years. And The Truth About Marriage took seven years. Wow. So they're just wow, increasing. That's, that's a whole marriage <laughs> but, in that time. <laughs> <laughs> right, you could get married, married and divorced three times. Yeah, exactly. But Trekkies was so quick because one reason is that the, the world we're uh, we're we're capturing was so vibrant and colorful and we had a film very quickly every every convention we attended was full of amazing interesting people and it was easy to get captivating footage but as you mentioned i was an outsider and i think part of the difference between trekkies and a lot of emulators that came later is that people made films about worlds they were immersed in and they loved and wanted to promote you know, I love the Twilight films, so I'm going to make a documentary about Twilight fans, or Twihards, as mm -hmm. they're called. I don't care, right? I don't really care about promoting the world of Star Trek or whatever. Sure. I, I mean, it was a, I love science fiction. I watched science fiction growing up, but to me, Trekkie, uh, Star Trek was just another sci-fi show that mm -hmm. I watched in syndication, like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or The Time Tunnel. I loved all these things. Star Trek, I'd see it on after school every day would be on, and so I absorbed it. Later on, I discovered there are these people who are so obsessed with this thing. And my, I had a brother who was one of them, and I had a friend who was one of them. And I thought, they're so funny, because the obsession is what's funny. Yes, so Trekkies is. is a profile of obsession. It just happens to be about a, this TV show called Star Trek. And because I'm an outsider, you're an outsider, we're looking at a world that we're not a part of. We can be much more objective mm. about it. I don't, if, if, if I was an insider, it'd be like preaching. Mm -hmm. I mean, like no one likes to be preached to. Mm -hmm. You'll put people to sleep fast. If you start preaching to them, uh -huh. you need to entertain. And so to me, number one, Trekkies had to be entertainment, had to be entertaining, had to be funny. Every second has to be captivating. So people won't change the channel. That was the first order of business. And I knew that the people, the subjects we were profiling fit that bill. They were very captivating and funny. And Secondly, there has to be a message to the story, I learned, and the message to me is organic. It comes out of what I'm filming, not me saying, hey, I need to preach this message to the world. I didn't care whether Star Trek was a success or a failure or whatever. It, it, that wasn't the point. The point was 
these people are interesting. Why are they so amazing? Mm-hmm. And one of the, me- the message of Trekkies, one of them is that, you know, there are worse things to be obsessed with than this TV show, which has a, itself has a message of tolerance and a future, a brighter future where things are getting better instead of a decrepit future, which most sci-fi portrays a world where everything's worse mm-hmm. than it is now. But mm-hmm. here's one that portrays a world where things are better. And that was what drew people to it, that optimistic point of view. Mm. And that optimism kind of suffuses them and it suffuses the film. It bubbles up out of the film as a result. And that's part of the reason you come away with it kind of energized and happier than than when you started, which mm. I think is what you want from a film. You want people to come away from the experience of watching your film a better person or feeling better than when they started in mm. some way. You know, it's a catharsis. Yeah. So that was uh, outsider. Yes. And it was a very quick shoot, which is atypical. And three, because we had never made a documentary, we didn't know what we were doing. So we sort of reinvented the genre in a sense, since we were the first of our kind of a, of a fan documentary. Mm. And what I realized that the biggest mistake, Trekkies is a very flawed film. And because it was successful, everyone's copying the flaws now. <laughs> but the flaws that I noticed was that most of these successful documentaries that we were studying as a, to, for us to emulate, like Crumb or mm-hmm. Hoop Dreams, there's one or just a small number of protagonists from the beginning with yeah. three-act structure, just mm-hmm. like a narrative script. Good documentaries have a three-act structure mm-hmm. with a hero, with a goal, with obstacles, and someone mm-hmm. standing in the way. And you're going to wait to you stick around to the end to see yeah. do they succeed? Who is chosen to be on, to play in a professional uh, football league, or what's the verdict, the trial verdict, or does Michael Moore ever get to Roger Smith, who he yeah. says at the beginning, "I'm going to interview Roger Smith," and he goes on a journey and Roger and me, yeah. and he never does, but he he solves that problem by interviewing an empty chair. So there's <laughs> a reason you set up a reason at the beginning for people to stick around to the end. And Trekkies didn't have that. And the way that we addressed it, our band-aid to this problem was, instead of doing one long story, we did several chapters of individual people. And so you got to meet someone like Gabriel Kerner or the Whitewater Juror or the Starbase Dental Dentist in Orlando, Florida, in short bites. And you knew that we trained the audience that this little chapter is going to end quickly and we'll be on to something else equally as colorful and fun. So if you're not as enamored of this one, there'll be something very soon and stick around. And each one has to build and be a little bit more fun, unusual, interesting Mm. and funny. There's got to be something funny about it. And I wanted audiences to laugh, not at the people, but to laugh with them. I wanted those in the film to be able to enjoy it as much as those who maybe know nothing about Star Trek, but are watching this as a comedy Mm. and a a portrait of life. It's a portrait of a subculture of human beings and of obsession. And that became enough, I guess, in hindsight, to sustain, to hold an audience from the beginning to the end, which is very difficult in a a story if you don't have a a thread from beginning to end. Mm. Now, it's great advice that as well. With all your docs, and maybe, like you say, you learned from Trekkies, to adapt for your docs how do you go about filming them do you have a specific set way do you write down a treatment beforehand to say okay well look this is going to be a three-act structure this is the story we need to follow these are the people do you do you plan it that like that or does it kind of go free-flowing a little bit and then you find it in the edit talk us through the best way you found that would be good advice for our filmmakers well the ideal world would be to do exactly what you just outlined (laughs) (laughs) to figure out your structure and to figure Mm -hmm. out your story and your from the beginning to the ending 
But that's often impossible or difficult, obviously, when you're profiling reality. You might discover, hey, this is a really interesting person, or this is a story that's already happened and you're telling it through reenactments. You do need to know your ending. You need to set up an ending, and then you kind of can fill in the middle. I started shooting not knowing my ending and then figured it out later, and that's one reason the truth about marriage took me seven years to figure out the ending. Mm -hmm. And I finally got there, but it took that long because – Partly what I had to do is wait to see what happened with these married couples that I went to their weddings and interviewed them. Then I had to wait several years to see what happened so I could check sure. back with them like Michael Apted mm-hmm. has done with his 7-Up films. Yeah, the 7-Up series, yeah. That's what I I was, uh, I was learned from him. And I thought, okay, that's my solution mm. to how to handle this film because there's really two kinds of documentaries. There's the narrative documentary, which is straight on. Here's a person with a story to tell and you're profiling them, and there are concept documentaries where you have an idea that you're trying to get across to people, and you want them to come away having learned about something, like Food, Inc., you know, Mm. corporate food, food raising, the corporate culture for raising our food is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. That's the concept you want to imprint on an audience without preaching to them. Mm -hmm. You need to do it in an entertaining way, and those are much harder to do, and for some masochistic reason those are the types of films i've gravitated toward are concept films like for the truth about marriage my concept that i ask at the beginning of the film and this is how i hold the audience to the end i ask a very challenging question right at the start with the idea i'm going to solve this mystery by the end so they'll stick around to learn the answer Mm. and my question was why are relationships so hard for people something's wrong if 50 percent are getting divorced I mean, if you created a product with a 50% failure rate, people would tell you to go back to the drawing board, but everyone's buying this product regardless, this idea of marriage, what's going on? And so I solved that problem in that documentary. The prior film, The Nature of Existence, the big mystery that I set out to solve is one of existentialism, which I'm not the first to ask this question, but I mean, you know, there's there's been Locke, Hume, Kant, Schopenhauer, lots of existentialist philosophers have asked, why do we exist? But I took on the same question for myself. Why do we exist? What is our purpose? Mm. What are we supposed to be doing here? Does it matter? Is there an afterlife? What is sin? What is the soul? And I solve this and this mystery, this riddle, by the mm. end of the movie. That's how I keep people you know, watching to the end. Yeah, they want to know what your answer is. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and so with a film like where you're following one specific person or a team or something, your ending is, do they win? Are they going to succeed? Mm. Do they beat the rap? And Or if you're going back and telling the story, like the, the Tinder Swindler is a yeah. film that's out mm. now. Mm-hmm. And they're retelling a story that happened a couple of years ago, how this one person who was the bad guy was cheating all these women. And particularly, they focus on one woman mm-hmm. and a couple others. So it, they narrow it down so we can experience a story, a three-act structure, mm-hmm. like the, the cheating, the pursuit, and the capture. All you know, and that's there's not really it's not really a concept film. We are, it's pretty easy to understand cheating and swindling, but the process that these women and that this guy goes through is what's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so the structure is kind of built in because they had their ending. They already knew what the ending was for that right. film. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, yes, you ideally want to know 
as much as you can about what the story is you're going to tell. But a lot of that goes out the window when you start filming and you uncover new things. Like capturing the Freedmans started out as one thing and became something else while they were filming. And you have to be flexible and willing to go where it takes you. Or sometimes I've started documentaries and it didn't gel. So I had to throw it out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that one didn't work. But sometimes Mm -hmm. you don't know until you start shooting. There you go. How did you manage to raise finance for... I so, you know what really interesting for our listeners is how you went from your first feature as a director in terms of non-documentary, you know, from High Strung to Suckers, but also your documentary funding. It'd be really interesting if you tie that in for us about how you managed to raise because it's really hard to raise money for a documentary because it's you're asking for like you say it's we don't know where the end. There's no script here. We've got an idea and we want to try and capture it. Obviously, a feature it is a little easier to say. Well, here's my story. Do you like it? Do you want to invest or invest in me? How did you go? about it during that stage especially when you said it was really difficult to go from my first to second film and that struggle that four-year struggle and I know a lot of people are going through that at the moment how did you manage to overcome those barriers well you have to 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 be able to withstand constant incessant failure Mm. and keep trying and be persistent and and not be afraid to ask for the sale I made a film called suckers about car salesmen And the most successful car salesmen I discovered when I was researching car salesmen are the ones who don't prejudge anyone who walks onto a car lot. They assume every one of them is a buyer. Mm. There's a tendency to go, oh, that person doesn't look like they have any money. I'm not going to waste my time on them. But you don't know. So I I ask everybody, hey, uh, give me your money. I'm going to make a film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so ask people for their money. Okay. And I've been successful. They've said, some have said yes. And for in different reasons and from different arenas, oftentimes with my documentaries, though, especially the last uh, few, they've been self-financed. Is that because of the success potentially of your other or because of you were uh, your successful career as an editor slash director that you were going, actually, I want to tell this story so I'm going to put some money in? Partly it became it's a labor of love. It's something I enjoy doing myself. And I didn't want to have have to uh, explain myself to anybody mm, or, to, or to have someone else giving me instructions. You know, with Trekkies, I had three partners, basically. And so I have a quarter ownership, one quarter ownership of Trekkies with Denise Crosby and the producers. And I've got to listen to them. (laughs) We have to listen to each other. We're a partnership. (laughs) And that in some ways made the film better and stronger because we're we're not always all correct. And Mm. it helped force us to come to a consensus. With Six Days in Roswell, about UFO fanatics, once again, profiling obsession, mm-hmm. we found I found an investor. It was a Japanese publisher who was inve- one, saw the success of Trekkies and said, what else have you got? And right. um, he put up $120,000 to make that film. After that, then I started making, uh, I made Suckers, in the, which was a narrative documentary, mm-hmm. or narrative no, feature film. Feature, yeah. And then when I started making The Nature of Existence, I started pitching to investors and I had a few on the line uh, and ultimately I decided not to give up control. I just started, I'm going to just start filming this myself. I've got the equipment. Mm -hmm. I know how to edit now. I know how to shoot. Why do I want to be answering to someone else? Mm. I mean, well, the the reason would be because I've got to live somehow. I've got to pay the bills. Right. And if I get the investor to put up the money, then I can live for a year. 
and deliver the film. But then that person gets to help (laughs) decide what to do or, Mm -hmm. you know, badger me and- yeah exactly or want to go with a certain distributor or certain sales which you might have gone well actually we might exactly. not see any more money from it whereas you're in control as we say before I, we're not control freaks we're in control uh, and that's the difference we we <laughs> care so much about our projects that of course we're going to be you know control freaks and i put that into a really uh, loose term because it's just caring about something let me add a, a, there's an addendum to that in in my in my new book the in cut to the monkey there's a mm-hmm. chapter at the end called Success in the Film Business, where I talk about how to succeed in an interview, whether it's with uh, an investor or a Mm -hmm. job interview or on a date. It's kind of all the same thing. Mm -hmm. You need to make people like you. People don't invest in my projects or hire me because of my skill alone. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what got me in the room, my track record. But they get a sense, an instinct. Do they like me? Yep. And what makes somebody like you is by showing interest in the other person. If ideally the most successful pitch meetings I've been in, I speak the least and they speak the most. Mm. The more they talk about the project, the more they're envisioning themselves as owners of it, as partners mm-hmm. in it, as participants in it. If I can just shut up as much and try, it's hard, right? To shut up. But you've got a chapter that says shut up. You know what I mean? You've got to shut up, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) Just shut up and ask people about their lives. Mm -hmm. If you're walking into a pitch meeting, look at their office and see what points of connection and overlap you have with them personally. Maybe you have a love for the the same sports team. So Mm -hmm. start asking them about their interest. Oh, I see you have that poster on the wall. I was at the last game. Did you see that game? Wasn't Mm -hmm. it amazing? Or you see pictures of their children. Oh, the children are beautiful. How old are they? Get them talking about themselves. If you get people talking about themselves, they like you. Mm-hmm. Talking about yourself doesn't make people like you the same way. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the secrets to successfully getting someone to write a check for your movie or to getting hired on a job is to shut up and ask them about their lives and then listen. Or on a date, as you said. Absolutely. <laughs> Just shut right. up and listen, right? Ask a good question and shut up and listen. You then carried on, you know, we, we jumped a little bit, but we we're talking about your editing and it's the journey of you as well, which is amazing. It's a really brilliant journey you've had in this this business. You then, obviously, with uh, Six Days in Roswell, you then edited quite a few other bits and pieces. The search for John Gissing was one. In fact, I am in that film. Um, I am you one are. of the I am one of the tap dancers at the end. Yes. <laughs> oh my uh, goodness! Yeah, I remember had, that scene well. We've had Jack Binder on the um, you know, on the podcast before, and I know Jack well. And yeah, we were talking about that scene. And yes, I'm very prominent in that scene as a gangly <laughs> tap dancer. Uh, so yes, that's always fun to know in the end credits. You, you said when you spoke to these investors, etc. Did you have your paperwork set out? Is it you doing that? Were you the one going? Great. Well, I might have them on the hook here. They might be interested. I've asked the right questions about them. How am I giving them the information to make them tick all the right boxes? Is that something you've learnt to know how to do the paperwork as well? The business side. Okay, there's two questions there. One is, right, how do you close a deal? And the, the, that the way you close a deal is what they buy is your enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Investors rarely read the paperwork or, they, they, you know, you make a lookbook or a sizzle reel and a scissor reel is trying as a way, a visual way of trying to capture your enthusiasm. Okay. They're going to see you saying, this is going to be a fantastic success. Everyone wants to get on a train that's going somewhere fun. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to get onto a train wreck or that hasn't started yet. So sure. you've got to portray 
the impression that you have a train that's going to these amazing places. And if you're smart, or if you want to, get on board. We're going to have premieres and there's going to be parties. And you're going to meet all the actors. You're going to be, you're going to, this is going to make you part of the excitement. Your name is going to be remembered forever in the credits. You, we're, if you can come to all the awards banquets mm-hmm. and yep, you yep. can join this great fun party. And that's what's, that's what sells, what closes a deal. But then you need a financial structure to be able to accept their money. And so you have to be ready and planning for that. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? You need to have a bank account under the name of this project. And banks generally want you to provide proof that this is a real thing. So that means forming an, in the United States, either an LLC mm-hmm. or a corporation or a partnership, uh, it, which requires documents that you file mm-hmm. and to prove to the bank this, this exists. And now you have a bank account that's ready to accept investors' money. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do all that and spend all the money on getting all of these the LLC papers drawn up if you aren't going to be successful, right? So you mm-hmm. kind of want to be ready to pull that trigger as soon as you have someone on the hook. And then you have to kind of spend money to make money. You're going to have to spend a little bit of money before you have their money to build that framework to accept their funds. Yeah, great. Let's jump into your editing side then, because it is, you know, even even more so, especially your up-to-date stuff, Kirby Enthusiasm, Veep, uh, Who is America with Sasha Baron Cohen, who obviously we all know in the UK as well. I suppose it'd be really interesting to dive straight into that. The difference between comedy and drama is something you bring up in the book. And I think that'd be really interesting, Roger, for us to know how you edit those differently or not they are different drama and comedy i asked a lot of the people i worked with like sasha and uh judd apatow and larry Mm -hmm. david you know what do you think is it is what's harder drama or comedy and judd apatow said to me something like you know a good story is inherently dramatic but we're just trying to add jokes on top of that so you have to do both Mm -hmm. you gotta tell a a a good story be easier if we didn't have to add the jokes this affects editing good comedy editors make more money than drama editors generally Mm. because they are harder to find it's harder Mm. to find good comedy editors and why is that the case yeah because you can tell when something is funny or not funny very easily whereas with drama it's still going to be dramatic even if it's kind of loose or sloppy Mm, subjective yeah Mm -hmm. whereas jokes have to be razor sharp and so your editor has to be able to wield that scalpel a little with a little more precision than a dr- dramatic editor. Mm. I mean, a great editor can do both and and does both. And and action is similar to comedy in that it's uh, you know it's really one or two frames makes all the difference in an action scene. Yes, to make it work or not work. So yes, they're very different. However, they're a good editor needs to understand both, and that's why I covered both you know, extensively in the book and, and all of the rules and tips that I put in the book for comedy applies to drama. I did find that like, one of my rules is that faster comedy is funnier comedy. One of the biggest mistakes that amateur filmmakers and editors make is to leave in a lot of the pauses mm. that like pausing is the enemy, natural enemy of comedy in the ums, the unos, look, listen, all of this word baggage that mm. actors will surround their the, the line with like barnacles, you've got to scrape all that off in the editing room yes. to create a clean line from the setup to the punchline and uh, g- scrape all that away and make it flow elegantly without anything that's extraneous and, and slows down the progression from setup 
to punchline. And this applies then to drama also. You want it to flow elegantly and get rid of all of that stuff. You can tell when someone's an amateur when you look at the way it's edited. If you're on the back of someone's head in a shot because you're seeing someone else talking and then they stop talking, but you're hearing the line of the person who's off camera. Yeah. If you're hearing dialogue from someone who's not on camera, you have total control over that dialogue because you can't see the lips. Mm -hmm. And so if you hear a you know, you can get rid of it. In that situation, that mm. means that editor is an amateur. They didn't get rid of the you know. Right. Everyone gets rid of the you know because you yeah. know adds nothing <laughs> to a line. <laughs> it's usually an actor reaching, trying to remember, so they fill it, fill the space. Absolutely, sure. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, I get rid of that stuff and try to make everything flow elegantly, whether it's comedy or drama. Drama, I did have to. I do sometimes have to slow down my naturally fast. Pace, like Veep is seventh gear, but mm. Grey's Anatomy, I had to put the brakes on uh, mm. sometimes because audiences want to feel the emotional impact in the in the pauses. That's fascinating. It's true because it, it, when you're watching that, you do want those moments of, and actually, you know, there might mean something, but you're right in the comedy. No, get rid of it. Let's get to the point. Get to the point. Now, working with Larry David, someone like that, or Sasha, they're all very clinical in terms of, I suppose clinical is the wrong word. And uh, I just put a word Sasha in. Sasha is very clinical. Sasha is right. like a scientist. Great. With exactly. comedy. Yeah, he wants it like that. How did you find jumping into that world? Obviously, you've been, you built up your career in such an incredible way. So you're already doing Curb, and then you did Who's, Who's America, again with Sasha, and then came back to Curb. Had you learned so much from the Larry David experience about there that when you went to Sasha, you kind of felt, okay, I'm all right with this? Or was it kind of like Sasha's so scientific with how he wants stuff that that was a new challenge as well? His science is not that he knows how he wants it. His science is that he analyzes it by trying it many different ways and then tests it with audiences and sees what works and takes mm -hmm. that data and uses, utilizes that data to then coalesce into, okay, this is the final product. It's not coming out of his head per se, as it is he's analyzing all the data to the funniest, most, most condensed version of something. Right. Larry David, it was hard when I interviewed Larry for the book, it was hard to pin him down for like rules for comedy. He says, <laughs> I don't know. He, he's like, he works from instinct, whether it's casting, when he hired me, when he mm -hmm. hired JB Smoove, he said, that was a perfect example, the character Leon Black. He said, when JB came in to read for the part, before he even spoke a word of dialogue, he made one of his faces. And Larry said, I was already laughing. He already had the job before he spoke the lines because Larry's instincts, it made him laugh, right? It, it, he goes on his instinct, which mm. is kind of the opposite of Sasha, who is analyzing, you know, data. <laughs> but they both arrive at the funniest version through these different approaches. I love that. And how was that for you then? How did you find dealing with that? Because does for you, does the comedy stop being funny almost instantly? Is it kind <laughs> of like you set up and you, you go, oh, that's good. Right. Okay. I'll start to edit that. I see what's happening. But now you're just like you say, Sasha's doing that and he's doing test screenings and coming back. Well, let's redo another test. Right, okay, let's really analyze what's funny. How do you still keep the funny if it's totally hammered home? How do you then go, okay, have we lost what was funny about this scene in the first place? I provide the same service to both of them. I, I approach things almost exactly the same way, to, no matter what I'm editing. And, and mm. I lay it out in the book, too. There's a, you know, I, I say, this is how I, how I break down a scene. You know, and editors can, all, many editors approach things differently. I start from the back. I start at the end and work to, toward the front. I start with the last take and build a version of the scene based on that take mm -hmm. and then try to improve it by going backwards. And the reason I start with the last take is because that's generally where 
it's the best. They've gotten to where they feel like, okay, we got it. We can move on. Yeah. And if I started at the beginning, I'd have to replace 95%. So true. Whereas yeah. if I start at the end, I only have to replace maybe 50 or 60% because I've got most of the best good stuff, the, the best punchlines, the best mm. performances. Not all of them. A lot of, some, sometimes it comes in the first take. And that's mm-hmm. why I look at, look at everything. So I do the same analysis for whether it's Larry or Sasha or whomever and provide what I think is the funniest most lean, most elegant version of the scene. Then they come in and, and then they start providing input and we start changing things up here and there. But it's it's really the same. It's just it's the same analysis. I mean, some editors, uh, uh, like my uh, partner, my associate on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Steve Rash, likes to start with the first take and make notes and watch them. And so it can be done both ways. But my way works for me and I think is faster. I can get it done faster and to answer your second question, you know, as time goes on, I laugh the first time. And then the second time I don't laugh because the surprise is gone. Yeah. But I have this sense now of, oh, okay, that's funny. That's not funny. That'll be funny. No, that won't be funny. It's, an, it's, it's like a scientist perspective of what is or isn't funny. Yeah. And it, then, then my laughter goes away until we screen it again and we see it with fresh eyes. And then I laugh again because I'm re-experiencing it now through others and that's why test screenings are helpful interesting um what do you think makes a good editor then what what is it that you feel editors should help provide for directors and and there is a great section in your book called the good editor versus the bad editor or something similar (laughs) like that but i thought it was a really interesting question to ask you because i obviously want people to read the book but at the same time i i really like that that you put that in what makes a bad editor what is why is someone a bad editor why is someone a good editor but maybe if we touch on what makes a good editor then people can look up what makes a bad editor (laughs) in your book a good editor is open to trying anything your natural instinct is to tell the director or the producer when they offer a suggestion no that's not going to work i already tried it Mm. that stops all forward motion you, that mm-hmm. should, you should never say that. What you should do is a version of what they do in improv comedy. It's called yes and. In improv comedy, when somebody throws you a line, you say yes. Like if they say, oh, uh, I see you're holding a duck. And then you would go, yes, yes, and it just shit on my chinos. Whereas if you said, if they said, hey, I see you're holding a duck. You said, no, it's not a duck. It's a hammer. Now you've stopped all forward motion. So mm-hmm. the idea is to accept what they've thrown to you and then add to it. You do the same in the editing room. When they offer a suggestion or a solution or they want to try something, you say, "Let's yes, let's try that. And let's try this other variation. So you just keep the process going. The showrunner of Grey's Anatomy, Krista Vernoff, when mm. I asked her what do good editors do, she said they love to take a note and run with it. Mm-hmm. They'll try a hundred different songs to find the perfect one that works in this spot. They're not afraid to try anything. And it's, you have to overcome your natural inclination. I did. My natural inclination is to go, no, no, that's not going to work. You don't know. You don't know. I've, I've, uh, I've tried things that I thought this is no way this is going to work. The director wants to get from 
point A to point G, mm-hmm. and we're cutting out everything in between. Yep, there's no way we can do that. They're in a different room entirely. It's gonna, it's impossible. You know, I look at all the that. takes, <laughs> and I try it, and I try everything, and finally I find a connector that gets us there. And you can't tell one wall is that much different from the other. It's, it's pretty much the same. The audience doesn't even know you switched rooms, and it worked. Mm-hmm. And we trimmed it down. And I, I've surprised myself because I was forced to try everything. There you go. And that, I think that's really important as well. If there are any editors listening out there, but also directors listening to that about how to work with editors and what's important and how it's very difficult for an editor. You know, you've, they've got all this footage that you care about, some of your babies uh, and the, the, the shots that you love or the, the best takes, but actually they might not work. I always found, you know, when I'm directing stuff and you sort of go, oh, just this last one, I've, I've nailed that now. This one, just throw it away. And during that take... Everyone in the room goes, oh, that was the best one. That felt amazing. It felt alive. And you go, yeah, it was amazing. You come to the edit and you look at it and you go, there's no way that can fit in. Because it's just so, continuity is all over the place. It's too big. It doesn't fit. And it's managing those directors' expectations, I suppose. How how do you, again, cope with that when a director's going, no, this is my baby? And how do you cut sometimes people's favorite scenes or favorite shots what what is it you is there anything you say to help get through that? well yeah you have to let go because mm. you made your best case when you delivered the editor's cut that right. was your chance now yeah. it's not yours anymore now mm-hmm. the goal the rule of the editing room is get the producer out of the room as quickly as possible <laughs> and debate doesn't do that debate mm-hmm. takes get keeps you there longer and frustrates people so what I do is I don't try to talk them out of their ideas. I try to actually succeed at what they want, whether I agree with it or not. Uh-huh. It's not about me anymore. It's about right. them. It's their turn, whether it's the director's cut or it's the final producer's cut, whoever has final cut. And so you have to try and give them what they want, even if it feels wrong to you. I've I put in jokes that I thought, no, this is the, it's too broad. It's, it's going to hurt the episode. And then Larry David said, you know, no, make this, put this in. I think it's really funny. And we screened it and he was right. And I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so your time is over. Once you've delivered your editor's cut, a great editor now becomes the facilitator for the director's vision. That doesn't mean that you, you give up having an opinion because an editor, a good editor also has to be a truth teller. Mm when asked, because a lot of times everyone's been dancing around something for the whole production (laughs) and have not told the director the truth because, you know, you know, people hate to tell the boss the truth because they'll get in trouble. Mm -hmm. But the, but it all stops. The bullshit has to stop in the editing room because there's no more steps. And so you have to become good at telling them the truth in a non hurtful way. Another job of the editor is psychologist you're there to kind of buck that person up to support Mm -hmm. them and tell them, yeah, this is a tough scene, but it's really good movie. It's a really good scene. It's, we're going to get it there. It's going to get there. I can see, you know, it's there. It's, it's, this is, you know, great. You've got to be supportive, even though it's going not as well as the director would like. And oftentimes the director or the writer director had this vision in their head of what they wanted and they didn't achieve it. And so your answer is, I know you wrote something here, you know, you had this vision and this isn't exactly what you had hoped for, but it's actually really good. It's going to be different than what you started out with, but it's going to be really good when we're getting it there. Mm. And so you have to sort of be their support system Mm -hmm. because this is a very, it's very difficult 
for the director to see their world come crashing down that they had envisioned. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to build up a new world. And that's what the editor's job is to help build up that new world. Beautiful. And just touch on quickly what what it was like directing The Office, because that must have been an, an education, a joy, a frightening, all those things in one to go in there with the team and sort of go, okay, hi, it's me, I'm doing this. Uh, talk us through that process and what it's like to jump into a, a, an already established, running successful series as a director. Well, The Office obviously was, was great because it was such a funny successful running show directing television in general is very challenging because it's not your show you're like the traffic cop you're there that week you're expendable and these people have been there every week and they know their character better than you will ever know their Mm -hmm. character so how do you know what to tell them what to do right but you're like a tv director it's different from being a feature film director feature film director it's all yours you're the boss it's your vision in television it's the producer's medium it's the writer producer's medium not the director's medium so i found it far less satisfying Mm. than making my own documentaries Mm. is far more satisfying because it's me expressing my idea my vision in television i'm expressing someone else's vision still fun and challenging but a very different thing. And when everything goes wrong, it's it's your fault, whether it is or not. Right. So the success is the key to success in TV directing, I would say, or certainly one of them, is you need to make the actors feel good. Because if you're coming back, it's because they liked you. Not how much money it cost or whether you went over budget. And mm. some of the mistakes I've made have been maybe too focused on, we got to make the day. If we don't make the day, we're going over budget. It's going to spill into the next day. And that's important. And that's what the producer's job is to not spend more money than they have to. Mm-hmm. But the actors don't think about that or care about that. They care about how they feel in the moment, how you make them feel. So you better tell them at the end, you know, that was fantastic. You did a great job. That was awesome. You are so funny. Working with you is amazing. It's, I've, Oh, I enjoyed that performance so much in this scene. You did, you know, even if they were terrible. Mm -hmm. So I find that less satisfying (laughs) to have to be a professional liar. Right. You know, it's like being a babysitter. You you, you got to make people feel good. But that's the key to success. You also need to have planned your coverage and do and you know, have all these other bases covered. But the most important thing is if the actors like you, you'll be asked back. If they don't, you won't. And so... That's very challenging, I found, in television directing. But it's not insurmountable. You just have to, it's just like the, what I learned in making the truth about marriage, right? It's about relationships. It's about mm-hmm. how do people feel when you are around them. So you better walk on the set and say, hey, how was your day? How was your evening? How are you doing? You need to ask people. How, even if the last thing you have time for is to stop and chit chat because you got to get this shot off and we're running out of time. You got to tell the DP what's got to, and you're coordinating all, all these things. You don't have time for the niceties and people should understand, you know, Hey, we all work together. We get it. We all had a nice night. Why do I, I don't care how you, you know, the, the boom guy feels, but if you want to be asked back, you got to find a way to make everybody love you. There you go. What brilliant advice to finish this on. Uh, Roger, thank you so much for your time. This has been really incredible, really lovely journey as well with your career being so diverse, you know, and interesting, you know, from your documentaries to the feature films, to editing, you know, hit TV shows 
thank you so much for giving so much advice. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me to come and chat. My pleasure. Cut to the Monkey is available now. It is fantastic. This book is brilliant. I've really enjoyed reading it. Uh, so much advice, not just for editors, but also for directors, producers in there as well. Really good. Links to that will be in the show notes of this uh, episode so do go have a look so there we have it go out there make your film you can do it make your tv series make your documentary write the script just do it go do it do it do it and if you're lucky enough to rise up it is your duty to send the elevator back down we will see you next <laughs> tuesday as always roger nygaard thank you so much for your time you're welcome this has been a pleasure everyone thank you for listening we'll see you next week Bye bye the Filmmakers Podcast is kept going by your generous support. To hear some bonus content from today's episode and future content, subscribe to our Patreon.